Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, I am not Jonah Goldberg, but this is the Remnant Podcast brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, my friend, El Jefe, uh, Jonah is, I assume, driving too far to go someplace in a car. Uh, uh, and if I was on Twitter, I would know uh, where he is. But wherever he is, I hope uh, he and his people are having a lovely and well-deserved uh, time away. Um, and I am Chris Steyerwald, uh, your friend uh, and assistant to the regional Goldberg. Uh, so <clears throat> there has been, there is always a lot of stupid, uh, discussion, uh, in American politics, and this is not new. It's just extra stupid, uh, these days, uh, as the, uh, Dunning-Kruger test, uh, continues, uh, apace for, uh, America's political discourse, the, uh, topic of history, education, and civics education, uh, has come alive with a crackling and alarming force. Uh, as left and right joust over critical race theory, the alleged whitewashing of American history, uh, and all that sassafras. And I thought, what a refreshing change it would be to speak to someone who knew something. Uh, so, uh, uh, gentle listeners, I give you uh, Robert Pondicio. Uh, he is many things. He is an acclaimed author. He is a renowned expert on education. He served his time in the trenches teaching fifth grade. Uh, he is uh, a volunteer fireman, an interesting person, and my new colleague at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, where uh, he, he does the heavy lifting on education. And this is our first chance to hang out uh, as virtual new colleagues, or we're, we're new colleagues, but hanging out virtually. Welcome and thank you, Robert. Uh, thanks for having me. And I, I guess I should say, you know, uh, first time, long time, as they say in the radio business. I'm, I'm, I'm a long time remnant <laughs> listener, so uh, nice to be here. Well, that, don't don't get cocky. There's, you're still you're still four away from the gold jacket. Uh, you know, you never know. And I don't even know if they count. I don't know if they count when there's a guest host whether Jonah counts that towards the total. So this may this may be all for naught. Oh, was that like the old Saturday Night Live routine of the uh, the Five Club, where the folks who've been on the show five times have a secret handshake? I yep, that. exactly. I'm, I'm dating myself clearly. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, I think you know, I've been very. You and I share 
uh, a, a strong belief that civics education is important and that American history education is important. I, mm-hmm. uh, every speech I give, uh, or nearly every speech I give, uh, concludes with a plea to the audience to demand history and civics education uh, in their communities. It's very important to me. And as I watch this uh, critical race theory uh, dummy debate roll on, I thought, I don't think there's that much history being taught at all. What's your assessment? How do, how do we measure, how do we know how much actual American history is really being taught in American schools today? Yeah, well, let, let me depress you, Chris, by confirming your, 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 your priors here. There, there, there's a test that we look at or a data set that we look at in, in education policy. It's called the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP for short. And, and so we test a you know, representative sample of kids in most subjects in reading and math and you know, history and civics and whatnot uh, every other year or so, depending on the subject. So, um, look, I, I'm mostly a literacy guy. I like to say that civics is my side hustle, but um, I'm mostly interested in, 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 in literacy and reading and writing. So, um, you know, the, the, if you look at NAEP literacy and reading for, you know, 40 years, I mean, this, this test goes back to the, Nick, the Nixon administration. It looks like a dead man's EKG. It has barely moved um, since since Nixon was in the White House. Um, so we are we are very very used to describing uh, quote the crisis in reading in in this country as measured by by this test by NAEP. Math is a little bit better, but not much. About you know generally about one third of American kids fourth eighth and twelfth grade uh, can read or do math at what NAEP calls the quote proficient level. Okay, so that's where the bar is set. Uh, one third of kids uh, are are reading well. That's a crisis. Well, you know, compared to uh, history and civics, reading is robust. Uh, so, in the last NAEP test, fifteen, not fifty, fifteen percent of students in in eighth grade were performing at the NAEP proficient level in U.S. history. So, what does that tell you? Eighty five percent of of American students are po- are performing below proficient. So, you know, again, if, 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 if reading is a crisis, well, then what do you call history, which, which is, by comparison, far worse than our, than our performance in, in reading? Uh, and uh, I take it that proficient isn't uh, a, a PhD, <laughs> PhD level. That profi- proficient is, is, is just that, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's probably the level that, you know, you'd rather your kid be proficient than not proficient. But it, it it doesn't mean that you're on your way to you know a, a PhD level at um, you know at, at at Harvard or Yale, which mm-hmm. is by the way it's kind of interesting because you know you're alluding so, to critical race theory and and you know a lot of the demands being made there saying well unless you're a critical race theory scholar like literally a PhD that you don't really understand this well we have 3.7 million American teachers who are not you know PhDs in critical race theory and and students who based on th- this data are you know are never even going to come close to that level. So before we could get to even, te- well, the first question is, I assume this is because of neglect, that because uh, mm-hmm. math and reading are, are so much more emphasized uh, and that, that this issue would, would tend to fall away and that schools would not, that this, is, that this isn't about it being, t- this may be more about neglect than it being uh, about misapplication. Is that, yeah, uh, is that I, I probable? Yeah, sus- I suspect that's that, not, not just possible, but, but probable. I mean, if you go back to the history of standardized testing in this country, going back to about you know, 20 years ago, under No Child Left Behind, that it became the law of the land that every child must be tested in grades uh, three through eight annually in reading and math. 
Um, so that that kind of set the, the the bar for uh, schools to be to be to to, to demonstrate uh, performance in in reading and math. And you know, there's an old saying in education: if it's not tested, it's not taught. And look, I have you know firsthand um, experience of that. I was teaching, as you mentioned, fifth grade in the South Bronx um, here in New York City for for several years. And fifth grade at the time was a so-called testing year for social studies. It was the one time in elementary and I think middle school where social studies was actually tested. Well, you know, m- my kids, when they arrived in my fifth grade classroom, only, you know, uh, less than one out of, I think, eight of them were reading on grade level. So nobody really much cared about that social studies test. It was not a so-called high stakes test. Now, I, you know, I, I taught the subject and I tried to prepare the kids for the test because I think the subject matters and I want my kids you know, to, to have, uh, you know, some basic understanding of U.S. history and, and whatnot. But, but suffice it to say that if, if every single one of my students had completely tanked that test, nobody would have cared. That was not how I was being evaluated as a teacher. I mm-hmm. mean, that, that, that was, there were, there were, I wasn't terribly well evaluated regardless. That's a completely different subject for another time. But the, we, we, the, sun, <laughs> the, the sun rose and set on those reading and math scores. You know, nobody cared at all about, uh, about history and civics. Um, and it showed. Well, um, I, I am more alarmed about American adults' incapacity to understand their history and operate themselves inside the republic uh, than I am maybe about any other issue. And I have I have a strong feeling that, well, let, let me make a, an analogy. If we taught math as little as we taught, as we teach history, as if we gave as little history and civics, or we gave as little math uh, as we do history and civics, we would not be surprised to find out that Americans couldn't do math, <laughs> right? And oh, yeah. when I look at what's going on in in, Ameri- in American public life today and in American politics today, it, we should not be surprised that people who are so woefully under or miseducated on history and civics are bad at history and civics. This wasn't always the case, right? There was a time where uh, American history and civics education was a big part of why we had public schools, right? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, we've all uh, seen examples, um, you know, of, of back, back in the day, Jay Leno used to do those jaywalking segments, you know, where he would go around and asking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people off the street, the, you know, questions, the, the, the kind of things that school kids, you know, used to know when school kids used to know things, so to speak. But I'll, I'll never forget one, I think he was at Disneyland, and there were literally three generations. Um, uh, uh, there was a kid a parent and a grandparent, and he was asking these kind of, you know, very, very basic history questions. The kid knew none. The mom knew one or two. Grandpa knew every single one. Now, that's, that's obviously, you know, that, that's an anecdote, but it's kind mm-hmm. of, it, to, to your point, it, it certainly feels like uh, we, we used to take the subject more seriously uh, than, than, than we do now. I mean, look, if you, if you want to kind of wonk out on this, too, I mean, this is really the founding purpose of American public education. Uh, I, I like to joke that Horace Mann went to his grave having never once uttered the phrase college and career ready. You know, that was not what we had in mind 150 years ago when we created these things called public schools. You know, public education was preparation for citizenship. You know, there was an, there, going back to the founders, to, to, to guys like Noah Webster and Benjamin Rush, there was a recognition that, you know, these things called republics tend not to end well. Um, maybe we should really take some steps to ensure that we have a citizenship or a citizenry that is capable of self-government. 
So, you know, the, the, the founding purpose of American education was really that. It was really preparation for self-government. We have drifted so far from that now. I mean, I think most of us conceive of, of the reason we send our kids to school is almost entirely for the public or the rather the private ends of, say, you know, get a good job, get into a good college, et cetera. This, this public dimension of education has, uh, has, has fallen into, into disrepair. So much so that a few years ago in my previous life at the Fordham Institute, I did a little study where I looked at the mission and vision statements of the 100 largest school districts in the country, which, you know, collectively probably educate more than half of, of American school kids. And, and this public dimension was simply not part of it. In other words, um, there, you know, I think 60% of the mission and vision statements made no mention of civics or citizenship whatsoever. Um, interestingly, the word patriot or patriotism never appeared. The word America or American literally appeared in zero of the 100 mission and vision statements of, of uh, the, the 100 largest school districts in, in America. Now, you know, again, no teacher is ever going to take down her district's mission statement uh, to decide what to teach on a given day. But it's interesting, right, Chris? In other words, when school boards, when the men and women who are responsible for setting policy in our, in our schools sit down around a table and say, okay, what's our job here? What do we do? The, the answer is not that. You know, it's not, it's not preparation for citizenship. It's not history. It's not civics. Uh, you, before we started this recording, you told me a uh, sad uh, but very funny anecdote uh, that you that you had uh, with a, a, the national anthem. Tell, uh, tell, tell the listeners about that story. I'm, I'm laughing, but it's really not funny. So uh, I was teaching fifth grade at a public school in the South Bronx, PS 277. And fifth grade was the, the you know, the, the, the graduation year, so to speak. So we would do an annual moving up ceremony in one year we decided to teach our, our fifth grade students for their assembly, the national anthem, you know, we're going to teach them the star spangled banner. And, and my principal overhearing this took me aside and said, do you think that's appropriate? And I was genuinely, you know, confused. Like, what, what do you mean? She said, well, that's a war song. <laughs> a war song. It's, it's the national freaking anthem. Um, you know, again, that, that's, that's an anecdote too, but it does, it does suggest something that these, these, these sentiments are very, are, are at loose in the land, at, at least among um uh, you know, our, our, uh, those who, who uh, staff and run our, our public schools. There's there's a couple threads I want to uh, explore. I, uh, the, the, I, I want to get us pretty quickly to the discussion about how it's taught and CRT and all this, uh, all this other razzmatazz. But uh, first, the idea that in a society where there is an enormous amount of value placed on individuals, and very or increasingly little emphasis placed on institutions. Uh, I would imagine parents want their children to get uh, educations that get them jobs. Uh, and knowing about uh, the War of 1812 uh, or 5440 or fight uh, will not help you get hired. And that it would not be, even for parents who were patriotic or who wanted those feelings, even for people for whom it was uncontroversial, it would still seem more, it would still look more like a luxury item. Yes and no. Is um, that fair? Well, it, it's, it's okay. I, I always say that every, every conversation about education worth having either quickly gets to it's complicated or, or it's not worth having. And, and this is another one of those. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm an unrepentant, um, unapologetic disciple of a guy named E.D. Hirsch Jr., who uh, listeners may remember wrote one of these kind of out of the blue bestsellers 40 years ago called Cultural Literacy. 
Um, and it, you know, it was on the New York Times bestseller list for like 18 months, mostly because it had this list of 5,000 things yeah, that yeah, every remember. American yeah, yeah, yeah. is supposed to know. And I, I, I suspect that the, the fact that it came out at the same time of, as the Trivial Pursuit craze may have had something to do with its status as, as an unexpected bestseller. But look, his, I, his, I had it. And, yeah, and there was the dictionary oh, of cultural literacy. That's and there exactly was all right. of that stuff. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I, I've often described Hirsch as the one guy who described accurately what was what I saw in my classroom in the South Bronx every single day, which was kids who could decode, read the words on a page, but but struggled with with comprehension. And and his diagnosis, um, quite simply, is background knowledge. In other words, there is there's a, a store of of common knowledge that uh, literate Americans that, that writers and speakers have and assume that their readers and listeners have. And you know, at the molecular level, when, when that assumption is correct, then, then language happens flawlessly, um, fluidly. And when it doesn't, then you get this phenomenon that, that uh, you know, a lot of teachers uh, have had where kids will say, well, I read it, but I didn't get it. They're not lying. They're missing background knowledge. They're missing kind of illusions and idioms and whatnot. So it's, it's, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, and, and in, mm -hmm. in fact, in that very same school, I once, you know, had a, a, a professional development session that was called No More Trivial Pursuit. And, and the same principal said to me, you know, well, we're, we're, we're not going to teach the, the War of 1812 anymore. We're going to teach, you know, essential questions like, is war ever justified? And of course, you know, you and I will listen to that and think, well, that's oh. ridiculous. How can you have a meaningful conversation about you know uh, uh, whether war is justified or not, if you don't have a certain amount of mental furniture, including the War of eighteen twelve, I'm digressing somewhat. But the bottom line is that it's it's no, no, too no, no. easy. I, I think that I think that's very right. Yeah, it's it's it, it, it's easy to say. Well, this is all just trivial pursuit, but it's really not. In other words, if you if the Hirsch's insight was that literate Americans have this store again of what I'm calling mental furniture that is absolutely essential to literacy. So, in other words, if if the idea is that and you hear this a lot in education. Well, oh, history and civics, that's, that's really important. But we'll get to that later once kids know how to read. You can't separate the two. Um, literacy is knowledge, so to speak. So until or unless you know, every American child knows what the most advantaged American child knows, has that same store of, of mental furniture, we're not going to close those literacy gaps. So I, I, I'm just challenging your premise somewhat. To even conceive of these things as separate is, is, is to somewhat miss the point. Um, you know, kids absolutely need, need okay. history and civics. Otherwise, they're not going to become fully literate. But, you know, you can understand why parents would not understand. Oh, sure, that, right? sure, that, sure. Because the concept it's you're describing, the cultural literacy concept. No, it, right. it's, it's, it, it's almost a misnomer to call it uh, cultural literacy. It, it is literacy. In other words, so much of language and, and sorry, this is mm -hmm. wonky and boring, but it's important. You know, you have to kind of conceive <laughs> of, of, of English, whether spoken or written, is almost like an iceberg. You know, what's above the waterline is the 26 letters and the words we make. What's below the surface is all the context. And that context is a function of your general store of, of knowledge about history and art and music and science. And in other words, there's, there's no such thing as wasted knowledge. It's all grist for the, for the language mill. So when we think about, um, th there are understandable reasons why uh, schools and teachers parents, everybody would misprioritize civics and history education no uh, and that, that, that they would make that mistake. One of the, one of those things has to also be fear of controversy, right? So if I am the principal and I know that if we teach, if we sing the star spangled banner or we teach, uh, the war of 1812, or we talk about 
and and it it would be different for being in different parts of the of the country. If I'm in Alabama, uh, when we get to the part about Jim Crow, I think, oh, I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to deal with the parents complaining about this. I don't want to deal with the backlash. It might get written up in the local newspaper. It might become a sensation if we're just if we're just doing the basics. And conversely, if you're in the South Bronx, singing the national anthem could uh, could be controversial in un- or could appear controversial in unto itself. So if those things are true. Then, as a principal, I'm going to say, let's do as little as possible. Uh, <laughs> let, let's just brush by this thing because it's not. It's a. It's a trap. And do you think that this? It seems to me that the conversation around these issues is not a not not only unhelpful for the kind of history that is being taught, but discourages the teaching of history and civics itself. Yeah, I, I think you're on to something there. I mean, I, I kind of chuckle to myself when I listen to you know people having this argument that 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 American schools are are quote whitewashing history, and and given that NAEP data that we were talking about earlier, you know the the, the terrible performance in history, I think to myself, well, teaching whitewashed history would kind of be progress. That would be that would be better than what we're doing right now, which is which is utterly neglecting it. Um, you know, your, your question kind of is it's interesting to me because. Uh, look, I completely, I don't need to be persuaded that, that we neglect, you know, history and civics and, and that we uh, shy away from curriculum battles altogether. I mean, it's kind of interesting to me because I've spent the last 15 or 20 years arguing for, for more public debate about curriculum. It's kind of like the forgotten lever in education. Mm-hmm. Well, when the gods want to punish you, they answer your prayers because, you know, we're having a, a very robust debate right, right now about <laughs> curriculum, and, and it's not going well. Um, so, 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 yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, we are. What's interesting to me about this, though, is is that there, is there's a tremendous gray area, and people make assumptions about what curriculum battles can and cannot accomplish. I, I just wrote a piece for Commentary um, about um, you know about all this, and and John Podoritz, the the editor, initially contacted me, wanting me to write a, a piece about the ethnic studies curriculum in California. And I said, well, that's, you know, I'm happy to do that. But you realize that's not going to change anything, right? And what I meant by that is, and, and we know this, this is real data, 98%, literally, almost every every teacher in America uh, teaches um, all or in part uh, curriculum and materials that they either uh, created themselves or, 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 you know, found or curated themselves. So if you have this idea uh, that by having a curriculum battle at say this you know this state level and maybe even at the local level that you've solved anything, well you know that that's that's not the culture of education. There's still a very strong impulse in this country for teachers to kind of um, nod, smile, shut the door, and and teach it the way they want to. Um, that that's I say that's part of the culture of education, but what the, the gray area is because the law says they really can't do that, which is fascinating. I mean, there've been any number of court decisions that quite literally say school boards have the authority to set curriculum and teachers are, quote, hired speech. So there's this, there, there's this massive gray area in between what the law says and what teachers are encouraged to do, which is, uh, you know, I don't want to suggest that it's all nefarious, you know, close the door and teach what you want, but teachers are encouraged to, you know, differentiate instruction right. and find ways to engage kids, et cetera. So it's, it's not necessarily a conspiracy. But it's, it's incredibly unregulated. And the idea that we know what's going on in any given classroom on any given day, well, we really don't. Well, that, well, that would then also suggest that as these state legislatures uh, push through, uh, you can't say this and you can't say that, 
that uh, they're not fighting critical race theory. They're just uh, they're making themselves feel good or do whatever, but that 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 won't trickle down uh, into the classroom in the way that they imagine it might. Uh, that that's, that would be my best guess. I, I mean, you know, I, I have a, a, a complicated relationship with those bills. I'm not a big fan, frankly, Chris, of the idea of of censorship or or quote banning any you know ideas or topics. That 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 just kind of mm-hmm. will always rub me the wrong way. But when you, when you read the bills, they're they're more complex than that. In other words, it's you know, somebody uh, I can't remember who it was. You know, wrote something on Twitter, which was kind of you know facile and obnoxious, and, and inevitably got got retweeted millions of times. <laughs> About how ironic it was. Right, I was going to say, no wonder it was popular. <laughs> exactly, uh, that, you know how ironic it was that we were making Juneteenth a national holiday, and at the same time making it illegal for for teachers to talk about it. Well, I mean that's just silly. I mean none of these bills do that. Um, you know, but if, and I, I want I don't want to pretend that I've I've read every single one or studied them all, but you often see language like you know teachers cannot quote promote a point of view. It doesn't say you can't teach it. It doesn't say you can't discuss it. It just says you can't promote it. You can't put mm-hmm. your thumb on the scale. And my best guess is that, you know, the vast majority of American parents uh, tend to agree with that. Like, look, we want our kids to wrestle. And I say this, of course, as a, as a, as a sometimes civics teacher, we want our kids to, to, to wrestle with complicated, uh, you know, uh, social issues in class. What we don't want is, is, uh, is, is preaching instead of teaching. Um, so, I mean, I, I suspect that most Americans would be quite comfortable with that. Where, where this kind of leaves the rails is, is again, in that culture of education where some teachers, alas, do feel that it is not just um, their, respons- their, 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 their prerogative, but their responsibility to even to put the thumb on the scales and, and privilege certain points of view and doing this, quote, in allyship with their students. Um, you know, it, it, and and it, it just becomes very complicated and very messy very quickly. I went to a, I went to a conservative uh, preparatory school in a conservative county in a conservative state. Conservative uh, and, preparatory and, school. And what is that? The, I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> you can check out, you can check out the Lindsley school in Wheeling, West Virginia. It's out there for you. Uh, <laughs> the, the oldest preparatory school West of the Alleghenies. Uh, but uh, I can tell you that in 1991 or 1992, that there was a lot of negative, And I, I don't mean that uh, pejoratively, there, the the warts and all approach to teaching history was present there, right? It was if there's any place in the world where it, it could have been uh, whitewashed and turned into uh, shiny, happy people smiling, uh, it could have been there. And a long time ago, now uh, it was already I, the sensation that I had as a student, and the sensation that I have had when I have helped nieces and nephews, uh, with the stuff in junior high, my kids are just in, my eldest is just getting into junior high, but my sensation is there was already a lot of criticism of the United States in the way that history was taught. And that was my experience 30 years ago. Uh, and that I have to think that this is not, that it isn't whitewashed and that in fact, there's been a lot of discussion and I would, I would argue, uh, a misapplication. Uh, it's important to teach American history. Uh, as a that not that we are perfect and we have to have an honest discussion about it, but you know I don't get the sensation that even prior to this that the the virtues of the founding and the value of the founding, uh, the heroism of the Civil War, like the 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 great achievements of uh, America and its place in history were being overblown before. I can't imagine that needs to be knocked down anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I tend to agree with you. And again, you, you know, can't confuse one's personal experience and anecdote with with you know, you can't universalize mm-hmm. that. I, I went to a garden variety public high school in a fairly blue collar part of Long Island growing up, and then you know, there, there was this Tom Hanks essay uh, not not long ago in the New York Times where I think he said I'd never heard of the Tulsa race riots. Well, I, I remember hearing about it in high school, um, so it's it, it's hard to say. Because again, you know, keep in mind, uh, at the risk of repeating myself, right now the classroom is a bit of a black box. You know, just because you know what the curriculum says doesn't mean that you know uh, what, the, what what's being taught. And just because you know uh, what's being taught doesn't mean you know what points of view are being privileged. Um, you know, so we, 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 we don't know. My gut is that you're probably right about this. Uh, I mean, I simply I keep hearing about these schools that, that are, are, you know, don't teach racism and don't teach Jim Crow and slavery. And I think I'd like to visit one of those schools because I will join you in your outrage. I'm just not sure they exist. Yeah, I, I am. I am sure that uh, in a lot of places, Texas, we Texas is very often in the news on this stuff uh, and other places. I am sure that they're, I guess. So let's talk about that. Let's just let's just dive right in. The variety of ways in which American history is taught, where it is taught at all, uh, the variety of ways in which history, American history is taught, would be as diverse as the country, right? I would have to think sure. that there is a, yes, that there are probably places where uh, it is uh, a, uh, the lost cause of the Confederacy is still, uh, is still uh, nudged in there <laughs> in some classrooms and some schools. Uh, and I would have to think that there are some places uh, where it that America is a racist nation and a blight on the world is taught in other places. I would imagine sure. it, 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 I'm right in thinking, aren't I, that it's that that history education would be as diverse as the United States, and we're diverse. Yeah, I, w- without question. I mean, this. Um, there, I mean, again, we've already talked about how this is a neglected subject in general. But sure, you're 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 going to get um, almost inevitably. Uh, a large variety in in approaches and and again it's it has less to do in my mind with the curriculum than the attitudes and values that that a teacher brings to it so that's that's what we should really be talking about is kind of the culture of education and the culture of teaching as opposed to the curriculum and I realize that's an ironic thing coming out of the mouth of a self described curriculum advocate, but you know it is what it is you've got three point seven million American teachers of you know varying levels of 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 skills and per- political persuasion so it's almost impossible, you know, in 180 days times, you know, um, 40 weeks and seven hours a day that, that your, your personal point of view is not going to kind of leach into, into your teaching. And, and kids are, you know, hardwired to pick up on it. I mean, that's, that's where this really gets interesting and complicated is, is again, not what the curriculum says, um, but the, 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 the unspoken curriculum, so to speak, what, what students think they have to, uh, you know, uh, spout in the values that they have to echo back to the teacher, you know, to, because they, they, they get the sense that's what the teacher wants to hear. So um, it's, it's a bit of a Gordian knot, right? In other words, I, I don't see an easy way uh, out of this morass other than just saying, look, we just have to get more sophisticated about all this. We have to kind of remind ourselves that there is a public dimension to, to, to public education, that it's not just about my kid, it's about you know, the next generation, uh, that we probably have to find a way to make more of a virtue of teaching history. Uh, you know, we can't just leave it to, as you say, to you know the 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 most invested and the most most activist here. That that's a problem. Um, you know, if you've got kids who are not prepared to have these conversations at a meaningful level, then all they're prepared to to do is march in someone else's army, so to speak. I mean, there, we got a lot of work to do to to kind yeah. of. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate because like th- this, these are the kind of 
skills and values we need right now to have an intelligent debate about all this stuff. And but the, the bell rang a long time ago, and and here we are. Well, to to uh, to circle back to something that you said early on, the concept when Benjamin Franklin, uh, you mentioned, uh, we were talking earlier, uh, Horace Mann, uh, the fathers of American public education saw yeah. it as an essential part of having a republic that you can't have a functioning republic without an educated uh, populace. And if the the populace is good at math, when it's not even that good at math and reading, but <laughs> if they're not good at citizenship, if they're, if they're even worse at citizenship, uh, then it's failing in its critical, critical mission. Um, I, 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 I understand why parents, especially at public schools, I understand why public school parents, when I, as a political issue, this resonates for Republicans because uh, CRT, uh, critical race theory, resonates for Republicans because there are a lot of parents who even who are not Republican or are not conservative, when they hear what their kids, you know, you know, the, how many times have you heard these stories? Uh, the, the kid comes home from school and says, you'll never believe, you'll never believe uh, what Mrs. Lipschitz said uh, today <laughs> about X, Y, Z. And then mom and dad say, what? And yeah. I, I will share. I will share with you my fa my favorite story in this regard. Uh, a, a a very dear friend of mine. I won't identify because it's it's. It, I don't know whether he'd want to, but he was uh, driving his family uh, to church one Sunday, uh, and uh, they 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 are indeed white people. Uh, and his uh, he said to his son, "What are you learning at school?" And he said, "Well." Uh, we're doing this, that, and the other thing. It's Black History Month, and you know, white people uh, kept blacks as slaves. Uh, white people had segregation and Jim Crow. White people did this. There's a silence, and then the kid goes, uh, "We're not white, are we, Dad?" <laughs> 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 so, 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 so when your when your kindergartner, when your five year old uh, lays that one on you, you may think, well. Uh, you you may have a low level of satisfaction with the way it's being taught. So I I, I don't know with the policy side of it, but I'm just I'm telling you that on the political front, for a lot of parents, when Republicans, I think I think basically what's happening is the phrase "critical race theory" is quickly coming to mean something that is not on both sides not connected to the actual thing, an academic concept of learning, uh, yeah. and uh, and all of those things, but has has come to mean anti-racist, a, a focus on anti-racism in teaching American history. I think that's, and, yeah, and I, when, I think they, that's when, right. when politicians say that, there are a lot of parents, also known as voters, who say, yeah, yeah I'm sick of that. I don't like the way they do that. Yeah, no, I, I think I mean, there's, there's a lot there, and I, I'm, I'm in agreement with, with, with uh, almost all of it. Um, Look, you know, it's 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 interesting. Well, first of all, I mean, on, on the specifics of critical race theory, it's important to kind of you know spot and avoid these kind of Mott and Bailey sort of things that happen where people say, well, oh, well, that's not critical race theory, or somebody you know again on Twitter said, hey, if your kid is learning critical race theory, they're 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 in law school. Well, that's probably right too. I mean, it's it's not about whether they're quote teaching critical race theory. It's about teaching through a, a critical theory lens. I mean, twenty years ago, Chris, when I was in ed school. Um, I had to demonstrate as a condition of getting my master's degree in elementary education. I had, I had to demonstrate through my portfolio, quote, a commitment to teaching for social justice. So this is not new in a sense. I mean, it's kind of like 
you know, the, the, the line in, in Hemingway about the character who said how he went bankrupt, you know, gradually and then suddenly two ways. So a lot of this stuff has been, you know, found right. its way into American <laughs> education <laughs> gradually and then suddenly. What's interesting, I mean, this is just a theory, but I, but I suspect what's driving a lot of the current Sturm und Drang here is, you know, think of what schooling has been like for a lot of kids for the last year. It's been online. It's been over Zoom. So suddenly parents have that lens into the classroom. It's coming into their living room. So, mm-hmm. so they they get to see exactly what their kids are learning, what the teacher's saying, and you know I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. There's you know lots of great teachers out there doing terrific work, but every now and then something happens. You're like, wait a minute, what did I just hear? And, and then you see these scenes that we see on you know every day on 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 Twitter of you know angry parents going before school boards and and basically saying you know WTF you know and 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 by the way that's civic engagement for you, right? I mean this this is this is what we're supposed to want in this country. Mm-hmm is for citizens to go to public meetings and raise their voice and, and have their votes, you know, or their, their voices and their votes count. So, you know, people are looking at this and they're appalled. I, I look at it and I think it's thrilling. I mean, this is, this is exactly the outcome that you want. It's, that's called civic engagement. Um, by the way, self, self-government is hard. It's messy. We knew that. That's, again, to go full circle, why we created these things called public schools. Uh, so, so, you know, you and I and our fellow citizens would be prepared to have these debates in public. I'm good with a pretty decent dose of patriotic indoctrination. I think balancing honest teaching uh, with uh, uh, patriotic uh, formation. You know, so we talk about character and formation uh, and that uh, loving your country and understanding the value of America and Americanism uh, in history and compared to everything else uh, is an important value to instill in children, sure. even before they can understand it. When I, you know, when we indoct- when we indoctrinate, we say to kids, "Be nice," right? Uh, we don't say explore your explore yourself. They say, "Be nice, be fair." So we indoctrinate them on those virtues. But I think indoctrinating kids on I think, yes, you have to teach history as it is. Uh, you can't whitewash it. You can't, you can't say that America has been perfect at every point. But that a little patriotic, uh, uh, you know, goosing the, goosing the, the, the patriotism uh, would be a good thing. Is that okay or is that too jingoistic? I, I don't think so. I mean, well, two things. Um, first, I mean, when I was teaching in my, uh, most recently a high school civics class, I used to love to, to start the, the, the semester with a reading of the preamble of the Constitution. And that, you know, the, the language about building a more perfect union, the, the entire frame for what I would describe as my class would be, okay, let's talk about ways in which we have met that standard, which way, talk about ways in which we've exceeded that standard. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about ways in which we have a long way to go. That, that seems quite reasonable and fair. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not one or the other. It's not binary. It's not always good or always bad. But at, the, at, a, at a more philosophical level, Chris, think about this. I mean, you know, the, the cost of education in this country is, is socialized. You know, you pay school taxes in your local community, whether you have one kid, 10 kids, or, or no kids. Well, think that through. Why, why is that? that? That implies that we have a, uh, an investment in, in all of our children. So it's not just my kid and what my kid gets. It's your kid and, and my kid, too. Um, but that implies a, a, a literal investment in, in, in that civic outcome that we keep, we keep talking about. So you know, if, if I wanted to persuade myself, it wouldn't be too hard to, to paint a picture 
of American public education that is starting to drift in conflict with, with that public purpose. Um, you know, you, look, your point is exactly right. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know any thinking person who says anything other than, of course, we should teach the warts and all, but it should be contextualized within the history of a country that has made enormous progress, you know, um, uh, culturally, socially, etc. It's just kind of, you know, ahistorical and anti-intellectual to pretend there, there has been no progress on race, um, you know, in, in 400 years. That's just simply not, that's demonstrably false. Um, but it's also a curiosity that, that so many in our, in our education system seem to adopt reflexively this adversarial purpose and forgetting the, the, the point that, wait a minute, taxpayers are paying me to do this. And it, it, it just seems bizarre, frankly, to think that, that we should have a public education system that should be encouraged to do anything other than make a virtue of attaching our children to, to, um, to, to their country, to their community, etc. Again, that does not suggest jingoism. It does well, not suggest, you know, my country right or wrong. But it suggests that we have a, the, 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 the civic mission of schools is not to alienate kids, to not estrange them from this country, but to attach them to it and give them, uh, you know, invest them in that more perfect union narrative. Which, which brings us back to the uh, emphasis on individuality ver uh, uh, contrasted with investing in strong institutions. We've always been a nation of, of a very highly individualistic nation, sure. uh, much, much more so than other Western countries. Uh, and I dig it. Uh, but uh, this, you know, when I think about schools, and I think about public education, it is one of the, it is probably the, the single strongest, strongest example of something that is both an input and an output of mm. our governance, right? So the, the, gover the, the government that we make uh, creates and governs the schools, but the product of the schools will shape how we make the government. And uh, it, it seems like there's a break uh, there's a pretty bad break there in the middle. Um, if we could make you the uh, Grand Vizier Superintendent of all schools, all public schools in America, uh, and you had unlimited powers uh, to <laughs> do and impose uh, on curricula and everything else, that you could do anything that you wanted, what would be, what would be your prescription for America's schools? Uh, well, let me start by saying, Chris, if if nominated, I will not run. And, and if elected, I, I will not serve. Uh, so with, with that caveat. Um, stipulate, but, yeah, stipulate. Yes. I, I don't think I'm going to surprise uh, surprise you based on my conversation with how I would answer that. It's, it's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, again, I'm, I'm an unapologetic uh, E.B. Hirsch disciple. So I would get us first and foremost back back into the business of knowledge-rich education, you know, the, the the kind that you and I were 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 talking about and waxing vaguely sentimental for, where where you had um, you know a rich, robust education in all the subject areas, not just reading and math, but but history and civics and art and music and, and you know, the, in other words, that 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 broad panoply of, of of educational inputs that that makes for 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 literate citizens. So that's that's a non-negotiable. And then I suppose I would like to find a way to restore this public purpose. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I, you know, I'm a, a stalwart school choice guy. Um, I, I believe very, very much in in school choice. I, you know, I was lucky to choose my daughter's school. Sounds like your parents were lucky enough to choose your school. Um, I've always wanted the least fortunate of us to have what what I take for granted, and many of us take for granted, which is you know freedom and flexibility. That said, I've I've run afoul recently 
of some of my choice advocate friends by saying, look, you know, choice does not solve this problem because, you know, the, the, the CRT and the debate over, uh, over anti-racism is not an educational issue. It's a political issue. And, and this is not about, you know, mm-hmm. free to be you and me and you teach it your way and I'll teach it my way. Uh, I mean, the folks who are, you know, the most militant about critical race theory and anti-racism are every bit as interested in how you teach your kid as how they teach their own. And I think we need to be clear eyed about that. So, you know, choice just does not make that go away. Um, you know, and, and I would say this as well to folks on the right who tend to think that, you know, choice is the answer to everything. Well, you know, the sun will probably go out before a majority of American kids are doing something other than attending their, their local neighborhood school. And it's not even always, Chris, because they've been conscripted. It's sometimes because it's a, it's a, a cultural value that you know, we live in this town. That's our public school. We like it mm-hmm. just fine. And they're going to go there. So we, we have to kind of remind ourselves that we do have a, a literal investment in every kid, not just our own. And, and that implies we have to be, uh, you know, to take this idea of self-governance seriously, to, to, to be as deeply invested in the education that every kid gets, not just our own. And I do think that requires at a, at some, some level um, interest in that public purpose. Are we preparing kids uh, to, you know, for, for lives of active and engaged citizenship? I mean, th- this might be a completely different conversation for a different uh, podcast, but I mean, this, this has impact on the way we teach civics. They're like history. We teach it badly, but, but when we teach it at all, it tends to have much more of an activist uh, edge to it than a kind of, you know, here's where the levers are and here's how to pull them three branches of government, that, you know, that, that kind of old schoolhouse rock vision of civic education that you and I probably remember. That's right. If they, if they don't sell milk at the Home Depot, uh, and if you, uh, if, if you show up there and ask for it and, and they don't give it to you, you're going to be upset if you don't know what a hardware store is. And if you don't know what a republic <laughs> is and you don't know how it functions and you don't know what your job is, you are, you are likely to be upset when it does not deliver the things that you uh, mistakenly expect it might. Uh, Robert, you have uh, delivered uh, a, a, a wonderful payload uh, of great insight on this stuff. Thank you for rooting us uh, in closer to fact and closer to basis. Uh, the takeaway is uh, depressing in one way <laughs> that we can say that uh, we're arguing over the color of the seats in a car that has no engine. Uh, so that's kind of a bummer. Uh, but on yeah. But you, but you, but you've made me, you've made me optimistic because, as you point out, engagement on these issues is what we need, and uh, uh, dumb conversations are at least a starting point. And now you have equipped us with more knowledge. So, uh, Robert, my uh, new colleague and now my friend, uh, thank you for making time for us. Chris, I really appreciate it. A lot of fun. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.